we are going to discuss book five. Book five is where we finally meet Odysseus. After all of this talk about the godlike Odysseus, we finally get introduced to him here. He is stuck on Calypso's island, and he's been there for 10 years, being held captive by the beautiful and enchanting goddess Calypso. In books one through four, we were introduced to Telemachus, Odysseus's son, and the books one through four are actually called the Telemachy because they deal with Telemachus's journey, so to speak, his odyssey. Um, you have seen him transform from this very shy, kind of um, unconfident boy to a more confident um young man with the help of Athena, of course. So um, after we have met Telemachus and we're now meeting Odysseus, if you look at your timeline, you'll see that book five, book actually book fi books five through eight take place at the same time that books one through four do. So we're actually going back a little bit in time, not quite as far back as we will in book nine, but we've stepped back just a little bit. So as we journey um, with Odysseus and um, begin the journey home with him, there are some questions that I want you to think about. First of all, none of you probably read the introduction to this version of the Odyssey, but it actually has a lot of good information. And if you look on page, it's in Roman numerals. So if you look on page 26 of the introduction to this book, it says, and I quote, the name Odysseus is connected to a Greek verb, odusomai, which means to suffer pain. The verb odusomai can mean to inflict pain as well to suffer it. And Odysseus's name describes an active as well as passive relationship to suffering. So what this means is that in this poem, Odysseus both suffers and inflicts pain. And that's really important. So as we move forward in the poem, I want you to notice instances where this suffering happens and think about these questions. What causes this suffering? And is this suffering justified? Meaning, what kind of suffering does Odysseus endure and what kind of suffering does he cause? And is the suffering that he endures justified? And is the suffering that he causes other people justified? I also want you to think about these other questions as we read through the book. Why does Odysseus choose to leave his life of paradise on Calypso's island? She makes his life a paradise why would he leave? And what does this tell us about his character? Next, I want you to think about what obstacles does Odysseus have to overcome to begin his journey home? What skills does he use to overcome these obstacles? And what does this tell us about his character? These questions I will ask you again and again as we move forward, because one of the most important things for you to notice in this story is what is Odysseus's motivation? Is he a dynamic or a static character? Does he change or does he not change? And then finally, our last question, does Odysseus live up to his godlike reputation? We have to see if he lives up to the hype that everyone has built around him. So with these questions in mind, let's dive into the story. 
Odyssey, Book 5 Dawn reluctantly left Tithonus in her rose-shadowed bed, then shook the morning into flakes of fire. Light flooded the halls of Olympus where Zeus, High Lord of Thunder, sat with the other gods listening to Athena reel off the tale of Odysseus's woes. It galled her that he was still in Calypso's cave. Zeus, my father, and all you blessed immortals, kings might as well no longer be gentle and kind or understand the correct order of things. They might as well be tyrannical butchers for all that any of Odysseus's people remember him, a godly king as kind as a father. No, he's still languishing on that island, detained against his will by that nymph Calypso. No way in the world for him to get back to his land. His ships are all lost, he has no crew left to row him across the seas crawling back. And now the islanders are plotting to kill his son as he heads back home. He went for news of his father to Sandy Pylos and white-bricked Sparta. Stormcloud Zeus had an answer for her. Quite a little speech you've let slip through your teeth, daughter. But wasn't this exactly your plan so that Odysseus would make them pay for it later? You know how to get Telemachus back to Ithaca and out of harm's way with his mother's suitors sailing in a step behind. Zeus turned then to his son Hermes and said, Hermes, you've been our messenger before. Go tell that ringleted nymph it is my will to let that patient man Odysseus go home, not with an escort, mind you, human or divine, but on a rickety raft, tribulation at sea, until on the twentieth day he comes to Scaria in the land of the, of the Phaeacians, our distant relatives, who will treat Odysseus as if he were a god and take him on a ship to his own native land with gifts of bronze and clothing and gold, more than he ever would have taken back from Troy had he come home safely with his share of the loot. That's how he's destined to see his dear ones again and return to his high-gabled Ithacan home. Thus Zeus, and the quicksilver messenger laced on his feet the beautiful sandals, golden, immortal, that carry him over landscape and seascape on a puff of wind. And he picked up the wand he uses to charm mortals' eyes to sleep and make sleepers awake. I'm going to stop here for a moment before I proceed with the story to point out what is called a Homeric simile. In the poem, Homer often used these similes, which are basically multi-line comparisons, to emphasize a heroic or dramatic nature of a moment. Homeric similes are also called epic similes. In a Homeric simile, the image it contains usually helps to elevate your understanding of the emotional state of a character or of a situation that's being described. So there are three parts to a Homeric simile. The first part are the lines that lead into the simile, and they set the context for the simile so that you know what's going to be compared. The second part of the simile are the actual lines of the poetic comparison. And in our version, Lombardo italicizes the actual simile part so that it makes it easy for us to see them. The third and final part of the Homeric simile are the, called the closing lines. And these actually help clarify the actual situation and they help us understand what is part of the comparison. So let me read this next part and I'll point out each parts of the Homeric simile. So the first part, the lines leading into the Homeric simile 
are the next three lines. Holding this wand, the tough Quicksilver God took off, bounded onto Pieria, and dove down through the either down to the sea. That is ex- explaining to us what's going on. So here we have Hermes. He's the Quicksilver God. That's his epithet. He's taking off and he's diving down into the ether down to the sea. So he's diving down into the mist right over the sea. Now we head into the second part of the Homeric simile, which is the lines of comparison. And those are the italicized lines. Skimming the waves like a cormorant, the bird that patrols the saltwater billows, hunting for fish, sea spume on its plumage. Notice that just like any type of simile, it has the word like. So in this simile, we have the quicksilver god, or Hermes. He's skimming the waves like a cormorant, which is a type of seabird. Then in the closing lines, which is the third part of the simile, we have Hermes flying low and planing the whitecaps. So this closes the simile for us, and it tells us that who is skimming the waves like a cormorant? Well, it's Hermes. So usually the closing lines will clarify the two things that are being compared. So as with any simile, you want to make sure you're paying close attention to what are the two things being compared. In this Homeric simile, we have Hermes being compared to a cormorant, which is a seabird that skims low over the waves as it flies so that the salt spray from the waves um, covers its, um, its feathers. And he does this so he can fly fast and low and get to where he needs to go as quick as lightning because, of course, he's under orders from Zeus and he wants doesn't want to dally. So this is a Homeric simile, and I'm going to assign you some particular writing and some particular analysis of Homeric similes um, in the following books as you're reading. So whenever you come to these italicized portions, make sure that you're noticing them and really thinking about why did Homer want us to really slow down and look at this moment? What is it about the heightened emotions of the characters or the heightened emotions of the um, and, and drama of the situation that's being described? Homer really wanted to bring our attention to this, and that's why he made these um, Homeric similes so vivid. When he finally arrived at the distant island, he stepped from the violet-tinctured sea onto dry land and proceeded to the cavern where Calypso lived. She was at home. A fire blazed on the hearth and the smell of split cedar and arbor vitae burning spread like incense across the whole island. She was seated inside, singing in a lovely voice as she wove at her loom with a golden shuttle. Around in her cave, the woodland was in bloom, alder and poplar and fragrant cypress. Long-winged birds nested in the leaves, horned owls and larks, and slender-throated shorebirds that screeched like crows over the bright salt water. Tendrils of ivy curled around the cave's mouth, the glossy green vine clustered with berries. Four separate springs flowed with clear water, crisscrossing channels as they meandered through meadows, lush with parsley and blossoming violets. 
It was enough to make even a visiting god enraptured at the sight. Quicksilver Hermes took it all in, then turned and entered the vast cave. Calypso knew him at sight. The immortals have ways of recognizing each other, even those whose homes are in outlying districts. But Hermes didn't find the great hero inside. Odysseus was sitting on the shore, as ever those days, honing his heart's sorrow, staring out to sea with hollow, salt-rimmed eyes. Calypso, sleek and haloed, questioned Hermes politely as she seated him on a lacquer chair. My dear Hermes, to what do I owe the honor of this unexpected visit? Tell me what you want, and I'll oblige you if I can. The goddess spoke, and then set a table with ambrosia and mixed a bowl of rosy nectar. The quicksilver messenger ate and drank his fill, then settled back from dinner with heart content, and made the speech she was waiting for. You ask me, goddess to god, why I have come. Well, I'll tell you exactly why. Remember you asked, Zeus ordered me to come here. I didn't want to. Who would want to cross this endless stretch of deserted sea? Not a single city in sight where you can get a decent sacrifice from men. But you know how it is. Zeus has the aegis and none of us gods can oppose his will. He says you have here the most woebegone hero of the whole lot who fought around Priam's city for nine years, sacked it in the tenth, and started home. But on the way back, they offended Athena, and she swamped them with hurricane winds and waves. His entire crew was wiped out, and he drifted along until he was washed up here. Anyway, Zeus wants you to send him back home. Now. The man's not fated to rot here far from his friends. It's his destiny to see his dear ones again, and return to his high-gabled Ithacan home. He finished, and the nymph's aura stiffened. Words flew from her mouth like screaming hawks. You gods are the most jealous bastards in the universe, persecuting any goddess who ever openly takes a mortal lover to her bed and sleeps with him. When Dawn caressed Orion with her rosy fingers, you celestial layabouts gave her nothing but trouble until Artemis finally shot him on Ortigia, gold-throned, holy, gentle-shafted assault goddess. When Demeter followed her heart and unbound her hair for Eacian and made love to him in a late summer field, Zeus was there taking notes and executed the man with a cobalt lightning blast. And now you gods are after me for having a man. Well, I was the one who saved his life, unprying him from the spar he came floating here on, sole survivor of the wreck Zeus made of his streamlined ship, slivering it with lightning on the wine-dark sea. I loved him. I took care of him. I even told him I'd make him immortal and ageless all of his days. But you said it, Hermes. Zeus has the Aegis, and none of us gods can oppose his will. So all right, he can go. If it's an order from above, off on the sterile sea. How, I don't know. I don't have any oared ships or crewmen to row him across the sea's broad back. But I'll help him. I'll do everything I can to get him back safely to his own native land. The Quicksilver Messenger had one last thing to say. Well, send him off now and watch out for Zeus's temper. Cross him and he'll really be rough on you later. With that, the tough Quicksilver God made his exit. Calypso composed herself and went to Odysseus, Zeus's message still ringing in her ears. She found him sitting where the breakers rolled in. His eyes were perpetually wet with tears now, his life draining away in homesickness. The nymph had long ceased to please. He still slept with her at night in her cavern, an unwilling lover mated to her eager embrace. Days he spent sitting on the rocks by the breakers, staring out to sea with the hollow, salt-rimmed eyes. She stood close to him and started to speak. 
You poor man. You can stop grieving now and pining away. I'm sending you home. Look, here's a bronze axe. Cut some long timbers and make yourself a raft fitted with top decks, something that will get you across the sea's misty spaces. I'll stock it with fresh water, food, and red wine, hearty provisions that will stave off hunger, and I'll clothe you well and send you a following wind to bring you home safely to your own native land, if such is the will of the gods of high heaven, whose minds and powers are stronger than mine. Odysseus's eyes shone with weariness. He stiffened and shot back at her, words fletched like arrows. I don't know what kind of send-off you have in mind, goddess, telling me to cross all that open sea on a raft, painful, hard sailing. Some well-rigged vessels never make it across with a stiff wind from Zeus. You're not going to catch me setting foot on any raft unless you agree to swear a solemn oath that you're not planning some new trouble for me. Calypso's smile was like a shower of light. She touched him gently and teased him a little. Blasphemous, that's what you are, but nobody's fool. How do you manage to say things like that? All right, I swear by earth and heaven above and the subterranean water of Styx, the greatest oath and the most awesome a god can swear, that I'm not planning more trouble for you, Odysseus. I'll put my mind to work for you as hard as I would for myself if ever I were in such a fix. My heart is in the right place, Odysseus, nor is it a cold lump of iron in my breast. With that, the haloed goddess walked briskly away, and the man followed in the deity's footsteps. The two forms, human and divine, came to the cave, and he sat down in the chair, which moments before Hermes had vacated, and the nymph set out for him food and drink, such as mortal men eat. She took a seat opposite godlike Odysseus, and her maids served her ambrosia and nectar. They helped themselves to as much as they wanted, and when they had their fill of food and drink, Calypso spoke, an immortal radiance upon her. "'Son of Laertes in the line of Zeus, my wily Odysseus, "'do you really want to go home to your beloved country right away? "'Now? "'Well, you still have my blessings. "'But if you had any idea of all the pain you're destined to suffer before getting home, "'you'd stay here with me, deathless. "'Think of it, Odysseus, no matter how much you missed your wife and wanted to see her again. "'You spend all your daylight hours yearning for her.' I don't mind saying she's not my equal in beauty, no matter how you measure it. Mortal beauty cannot compare with immortal. Odysseus, always thinking, answered her this way. Goddess and mistress, don't be angry with me. I know very well that Penelope, for all her virtues, would pale beside you. She's only human, and you are a goddess, eternally young. Still, I want to go back. My heart aches for the day I return to my home. If some god hits me hard as I sail the deep purple, I'll weather it like the sea-bitten veteran I am. God knows I've suffered and had my share of sorrows and war in at sea. I can take more if I have to. The sun set on his words, and the shadows darkened. They went to a room deep in the cave, where they made sweet love and lay side by side through the night. Dawn came early, touching the sky with rose. Odysseus put on a shirt and cloak, and the nymph slipped on a long silver robe, shimmering in the light, cinched it at the waist with a golden belt, and put a veil on her head. What to do about sending Odysseus off? She handed him an axe, bronze, both edges honed. The olive wood haft felt good in his palms. She gave him a sharp adze, too, then led the way to the island's far side, where the trees grew tall, 
alder and poplar and silver fir, sky-topping trees, long-seasoned and dry, that would keep him afloat. Calypso showed him where the trees grew tall, then went back home, a glimmer in the woods, while Odysseus cut lumber. Working fast, he felled twenty trees, cut them to length, smoothed them, smoothed them skillfully, and trued them to the line. The glimmer returned, Calypso with an auger, and he drilled the beams through, fit them up close, and hammered them together with joiners and pegs. About the size of a deck a master shipwright chisels into shape for a broad-bowed freighter was the size Odysseus made his wide raft. He fit upright ribs close set in the decking and finished them with long-facing planks. He built a mast and fit in a yard arm, and he made a rudder to steer her by. Then he wove a wickerwork barrier to keep off the waves, plating it thick. Calypso brought him a large piece of cloth to make into a sail, and he fashioned that too. He rigged up braces and halyards and lines, then levered his craft down to the glittering sea. Day four, and the job was finished. Day five, and Calypso saw him off her island, after she had bathed him and dressed him in fragrant clothes. She filled up a skin with wine that ran black, another large one with water, and tucked into a duffel a generous supply of hearty provisions, and she put a breeze at his back, gentle and warm. Odysseus's heart sang as he spread sail to the wind, and he steered with the rudder, a master mariner aboard his craft. Sleep never fell on his eyelids as he watched the Pleiades and slow-setting boots, and the bear, also known as the wagon, that pivots in place and chases Orion, and alone is aloof from the wash of ocean. Calypso, the glimmering goddess, had told him to sail with the stars of the bear on his left, Seventeen days he sailed the deep water, and on the eighteenth day the shadowy mountains of the Phaeacians' land loomed on the horizon, to his eyes like a shield on the misty sea. And Poseidon saw him. From the far Solimi Mountains, the Lord of Earthquake, returning from Ethiopia, saw him, an image in his mind bobbing on the sea. Angrier than ever, he shook his head and cursed to himself. Damn it all! The gods must have changed their minds about Odysseus while I was away with the Ethiopians. He's close to Phaeacia, where he's destined to escape, the great ring of sorrow that is closed around him. But I'll bet I can still blow some trouble his way. He gathered the clouds, and gripping his trident, he stirred the sea. And he raised all the blasts of every wind in the world, and covered with clouds land and sea together. Night rose in the sky. The winds blew hard from every direction, and lightning-charged Boreas rolled in a big wave. Odysseus felt his knees and heart weaken. Hunched over, he spoke to his own great soul. Now I'm in for it. I'm afraid that Calypso was right on target when she said I would have my fill of sorrow on the open sea before I ever got home. It's all coming true. Look at these clouds. Zeus is piling like flowers around the sky's rim, and he's rough in the sea, and every wind in the world is howling around me. Three times, four times luckier than I were the Greeks who died on Troy's wide plain. If only I had gone down on that day when the air was whistling with Trojan spears in the desperate fight for Achilles' dead body. I would have had burial then, honored by the army. As it is, I am doomed to a wretched death at sea. His words weren't out before a huge cresting wave crashed on his raft and shivered its timbers. He was pitched clear of the deck. The rudder flew from his hands, the mast cracked in two under the force of the hurricane winds, and the yardarm and sail hove into the sea. 
He was under a long time, unable to surface from the heaving swell of the monstrous wave, weighed down by the clothes Calypso had given him. At last he came up, spitting out salt water, sea brine gurgling from his nostrils and mouth. For all his distress, though, he remembered his raft, lunged through the waves, caught hold of it, and huddled down in its center, shrinking from death. An enormous wave rode the raft into cross currents. The north wind in autumn sweeps through a field, rippling with thistles, and swirls them around. So the wind swirled the raft all over the sea, south wind colliding at times with the north, east wind shearing away from the west. And the white goddess saw him, Cadmus's daughter, Eno, once a human girl with slim, beautiful ankles, who had won divine honors in the saltwater gulfs. She pitied Odysseus, his wandering, his pain, and rose from the water like a flashing gull, perched on his raft, and said this to him, Poor man, why are you so odious to Poseidon, Odysseus, that he sows all this grief for you? But he'll not destroy you for all his fury. Now do as I say, you're in no way to refuse. Take off those clothes and abandon your raft to the wind's will. Swim for your life to the Phaeacian's land, your destined safe harbor. Here, wrap this veil tightly around your chest. It's a mortally charm. Fear no harm or death, but when with your hands you touch solid land, untie it and throw it into the deep blue sea clear of the shore so it can come back to me. With these words, the goddess gave him the veil and slipped back into the heavy seas like a silver gull. The black water swallowed her. Godlike Odysseus brooded on his trials and spoke these words to his own great soul. Not this, not another treacherous god, scheming against me, ordering me to abandon my raft. I will not obey. I've seen with my own eyes how far that land is where she says I'll be saved. I'll play it the way that seems best to me. As long as the timbers are still holding together, I'll hang on and gut it out right here where I am. When and if a wave shatters my raft to pieces, then I'll swim for it. What else can I do? As he churned these thoughts in the pit of his stomach, Poseidon Earthshaker raised up a great wave, an arching, cavernous, sensational tsunami, and brought it crashing down on him. As storm winds blast into a pile of dry chaff and scatter the stuff all over the place, so the long beams of Odysseus's raft were scattered. He went with one beam and rode it like a stallion, stripping off the clothes Calypso had given him and wrapping the white goddess's veil round his chest. Then he dove into the sea and started to swim a furious breaststroke. The Lord of Earthquakes saw him and said to himself with a slow toss of his head, That's right, thrash around in misery on the open sea until you come to human society again. I hope that not even then will you escape from evil. With these words, he whipped his sleek-coated horses and headed for his fabulous place on AJ. But Zeus's daughter, Athena, had other ideas. She barricaded all the winds but one and ordered them to rest and fall asleep. Boreas, though, she sent cracking through the waves, a tailwind for Odysseus until he was safe on Phaeacia, and had beaten off the dark birds of death. Two nights and two days, the solid, mitered waves swept him on, annihilation all his heart could foresee. But when dawn combed her hair in the third day's light, the wind died down, and there fell a breathless calm. Riding a swell, he peered out and saw land nearby. You know how precious a father's life is to children who have seen him through a long disease, gripped by a malevolent spirit and melting away, but then released from suffering in a spasm of joy? The land and woods were that welcome a sight to Odysseus. He kicked hard for the shoreline, but when he was as close as a shout would carry, he heard the thud of waves on the rocks, thundering surf that pounded the headland and bellowed eerily. The sea churned with foam. 
There were no harbors for ships, no inlets or bays, only jutting cliffs and rocks and barnacled crags. Odysseus's heart sank and his knees grew weak. With a heavy sigh, he spoke to his own great soul. Ah, Zeus has let me see land I never hoped to see, and I've cut my way to the end of this gulf, but there's no way to get out of the gray salt water. Only sharp rocks ahead, laced by the breakers, and beyond them, slick stone rising up sheer right out of deep water. No place for a foothold, no way to stand up and wade out of trouble. If I try to get out of here, a wave might smash me against the stone cliff. Some mooring that would be. If I swim around farther and try to find a shelving shore or an inlet from the sea, I'm afraid that a squall will take me back out, groaning deeply on the teeming dark water. Or some monster will attack me out of the deep from the swarming brood of great amphitrite. I know how odious I am to the earth shaker. As these thoughts welled up from the pit of his stomach, a breaker bore him onto the rugged coast. He would have been cut to ribbons and his bones crushed, but gray-eyed Athena inspired him. Slammed onto a rock, he grabbed it with both hands and held on groaning until the breaker rolled by. He had no sooner ducked it when the backwash hit him and towed him far out into open water again. It was just like an octopus pull out, pulled out of its hole with pebbles stuck to its tentacles, Odysseus's strong hands clinging to the rocks until the skin was ripped off. The wave pulled him under, and he would have died then and there, but Athena was with him. He surfaced again. The waves spat him up landwards, and he swam along parallel to the coast, scanning it for a shelving beach, an inlet from the sea. And when he swam into the current of a river delta, he knew he had come to the perfect spot. Lined with smooth rocks and sheltered from the wind, he felt the flowing of the river god, and he prayed. Hear me, river lord, whoever you are, and however men pray to you. I am a fugitive from the sea and Poseidon's persecution, a wandering mortal, pitiful to the gods. I come to you, to your water and your knees. I have suffered much, O lord. Lord, hear my prayer. At these words, the god stopped his current, made his waters calm, and harbored the man in his river's shallows. Odysseus crawled out on hands and knees. The sea had broken his spirit. His whole body was swollen and salt water trickled from his nose and mouth. Breath gone, voice gone. He lay scarcely alive, drained and exhausted. When he could breathe again and his spirit returned, he unbound the goddess's veil from his body and threw it into the sea-melding river where it rode the crest of a wave down the current and into Eno's own hands. He turned away from the river, sank into a bed of rushes, and kissed the good earth. Huddled over, he spoke to his own great soul. What am I in for now? How will this end? If I keep watch all night here by the river, I'm afraid a hard frost, or even a gentle dew, will do me in as weak as I am. The wind blows cold from a river toward dawn, but if I climb the bank to the dark woods up there and fall asleep in a thicket, even if I survive fatigue and cold and get some sweet sleep, I'm afraid I'll fall prey to some prowling beast. He thought it over and decided it was better to go to the woods. They were near the water on an open rise. He found two olive trees there, one wild, one planted, their growth intertwined. Proof against blasts of the wild, wet wind, the sun unable to needle light through, impervious to rain, so thickly they grew into one tangle of shadows. Odysseus burrowed under their branches and scraped out a bed. He found a mass of leaves there, enough to keep warm two or three men on the worst winter day. 
the sight of these leaves was a joy to Odysseus, and the godlike survivor lay down in their midst and covered himself up. A solitary man who lives on the edge of the wilderness and has no neighbors will hide a charred log deep in the black embers and so keep alive the fire's seed and not have to rekindle it from who knows where. So Odysseus buried himself in the leaves, and Athena sprinkled his eyes with sleep for quickest release from pain and fatigue, and she closed his eyelids.